So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, we have a Bible out back over there for you. You can grab one. Also, we have been in uh, uh, our series called the Gospel Life Series, and we have new workbooks for you. So if you need a workbook to be able to take notes, uh, write down scriptures, there's uh, weekly reflections here. You can grab one also at that back table for you as well. And uh, we are in Romans chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and read it for us and then pray for our time together. So join me as, as I do that. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So let's pray for our time as we get into God's word together. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are God who is sovereign. We thank you that you are a God who knows all things, sees all things, directs all things, and that you have directed us to look at these three verses this Sunday morning. We pray by the power of your spirit, would you stir in us a heart of love for you and for our neighbor? Would you build us up in faith by the power of your spirit that we would be people who love people who love well, not just in word, but in deed. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as I mentioned, we've been in our Gospel Life series, and really the, the, the purpose of our series has been namely to know the gospel, the greatest news in all of human history, that Jesus came into human history as the God-man to save humanity from itself, from the sins of humanity to reconcile people to himself and that he rose from the grave conquering Satan's sin and death and that he is right now reigning and ruling over all things. The greatest news in all of human history is that Jesus rose from the grave victoriously to adopt and reconcile his people into his family. Now, we need to know this good news and this good news isn't just data. It's not information that we just ingest, but it is meant for us to be tra transformed, be changed. So we know the greatest news in all of human history so that we can grow in the gospel so that we can demonstrate the good news of Jesus toward others. And what that means is that God's character, his nature, who he is, is to be evident and displayed by God's family. Right? And Paul wants us to know this very, 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 very much. And so where we're at in the book of Romans is in the latter half of the book where we are now looking at ways in which all of God's truths about who he is and what he's done for us is now applied to how we live our lives and how we treat one another. And so last week, what we did was we looked at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, where we looked at Paul's command to the church to have a heart of humility and submission to earthly governing authorities. And if you, if you, you didn't catch that sermon and you need a, to, to listen to it, please let me know. I'd be happy to send that to you to bring you up to speed in that regard. But Paul's point last week was that God is sovereign over earthly kingdoms, he's sovereign over earthly kings, and he is bringing about his purposes in the world. And so as Christians, we are called to submit to God and to have a heart of honor and respect toward those that God has placed in authority over us. And today, what we're going to look at is now Paul invites us to consider how that truth of God's sovereignty and who he is as the creator of all things, who's in control of all things, impacts how we treat one another. And if you remember, Paul writes 
Romans 13 in a very timely context. Very timely context for the church in Rome. See, the church in Rome was seeing culture unfold before its eyes. The, the history, the trajectory of historical events going towards a particular direction, right? If you remember, they're, they're beginning to see more and more persecution take place in their lives. They had Caligula as emperor, who's kind of not too bad, but then they had Claudius, who was worse. And then after Claudius, they had Nero, who is the emperor now, as Paul is writing this letter to the, to the church in Rome, Nero, who's a, a horrible emperor. He's a horrible emperor. He's, he, he, this emperor uh, killed his own mother. Uh, he then killed his own wife. Uh, then he began to uh, plot against Christians. He, he caused, uh, history tells us that uh, most likely caused a massive fire in Rome and then blamed Christians for starting that fire and wreaking havoc in the city. And then he began to heavily persecute Christians on that basis. And so Christians are starting to see in this context their religious liberties being taken away, their social liberties being taken away, their political liberties being taken away from them, and they see the writing on the wall. They see the writing on the wall. And what Paul understands here is he remembers Jesus talking about these things. In fact, Jesus said that, look, at some point, Rome is going to actually destroy the temple and Jerusalem itself. And that happens. History tells us that in 70 A.D., after Christians be begin to be persecuted very heavily, Rome invades Jerusalem, sacks the city, destroys the city, and destroys the temple in Jerusalem. All of this is happening throughout human history, and Paul knows, he sees the writing on the wall, and, and it, it hasn't quite gotten there yet, but it's going there. And it's very important for us to consider this because understanding this context will help us understand how to live in our context, in our day today. And I want us to look at this idea of the temple getting destroyed in 70 AD. You know, Jesus actually talks about these events that are to unfold in the church in Rome in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. And notice what Jesus tells them about what to expect in, in, in the coming years, right? As they are experiencing persecution, he's telling his disciples the following words. He's just told them, like, look, the, the, the temple's gonna be destroyed. And then it says this, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? These things being the, the destruction of the temple, uh, the destruction of the city, and what will be the sign of your coming and, at the, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Then he continues, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then he says this, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he, and then he foreshadows Paul and the apostles. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's talking about Paul and, and, and the disciples spreading the good news of Jesus across ethnic lines to all nations, 
And, and then Paul is doing this. Paul is doing this in Rome, where there's Jews and Gentile Christians in, in the context of the church there. But he, he says this. Notice that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the love of many will grow cold. You see, suffering and persecution and tribulation reveals the heart of many people. It reveals uh, the, the, the nature in which people process challenging seasons and difficulties in their lives. And Jesus talked about this way before these things unfolded in the church in Rome. See, here's the point, friends. People experience extremely difficult times, and in experiencing extremely difficult times, they lose focus on what's most important in life. And as they lose focus of what's important, in life, they abandon God's law, and their hearts grow hard. People lose sight of what's the most important thing. They abandon God's laws, and their heart grows cold. Now, what is the most important thing for us in our lives? What is the most important thing for us to experience as people? Somebody might say family. We need to experience family. Well, the reality is that we will lose our family members. Our family members will eventually pass away. If not pass away, our family members, uh, maybe we have friction with our family. Maybe we have relational turmoil. So family isn't the end-all, be-all. Or maybe somebody might say, well, you know what, finances. Finances are the thing that are most important in life. Well, finances can be lost as well. Finances will disappoint us if we lose them. Somebody might say, well, okay, the most important thing for us to experience in life is fun. <laughs> Got to live for a good time. Well, good times end. What happens when hard times show up? What happens when, when things don't go according to plan? Pleasure is not to be had. Fun is not to be enjoyed because of challenging and difficult seasons. Right? So fun isn't the most important thing for us. Well, somebody might say, okay, look, faith. Faith is the most important thing for us to experience in our lives. Now, faith is extremely important, okay? Faith is very important, but what happens when you place your faith in the wrong things? When you place your faith in the wrong things, they fail you. See, faith can fail you when your faith is misplaced in things that fail. But see, there's one thing that never fails, and Paul tells us. The answer to this question, what is the most important thing for us to experience in our lives, friends? Love. Love. Love is the most important thing we need in our lives. Love is the most important thing that you need in your life. Now, you might say, okay, great, I'll concede to that, that love is the most important thing that I need in my life. But we have to ask, well, do we have a right understanding of what love is? What is love? What is love? You see, we can be wrong about the fact that we don't know what love is. We might assume something about love that isn't true. And there's a lot to say about this idea of love, but Paul gives us, in our three verses today, he gives us quite a bit to consider in fact, he gives us three things to consider about the most important thing that you and I need to experience in our lives, about love. And here's the first thing that he says. Love is a debt that we owe. Notice what he says in the first half of verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, what's interesting about verse 8 is understanding verse 8. Seven before this, when Paul says 
to the, the Christians in this context about how to submit themselves to governing authorities, he tells them, look, pay what is owed to everyone. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He's saying, look, fulfill your obligations as a citizen in society. He's saying, look, you are called to make sure that you are not doing wrong by anyone in your life, so you're not to be in debt to other institutions or people. Now, he's not making an argument about never having debt and, 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 and trying to talk about what, you know good debt, bad debt. That's not his point. His point is, look, you as a human being, as a, as a Christian, more importantly, have an obligation to have a right standing with those in authority over you. So he's saying, pay what you owe. And then he goes on to make this point that owing no one anything except to love them. You see, we have a debt that we owe to every single human being in our lives. Anyone and everyone that we encounter, we have a debt that we owe. And that debt is love. Now, what Paul is basically getting at here is that there's only one perpetual obligation that you have, right? You could pay taxes, and then there's no more taxes required at some point, right? You could pay revenue, but you're not always paying revenue. You could respect somebody in authority in a circumstance, whatever context is going on. You know, maybe you're, you're uh, employed by someone, so you need to respect your boss in a particular season for a particular time. But that will end, and, and circumstances change. And so your obligations in society, in your life, are not permanent except for this one. You have one perpetual obligation to every single human being, and that is to love them. Now, the question people will ask is, wait a minute, if love is obligatory, is it love? I don't buy that. Like, if you have to force me to love someone, I don't think it's really love. Except what's, what's, what's interesting about that misconception is we don't do this, do that same thing in other aspects of our life. Think about it. Somebody says... They love their job, right? Do you have a job? Do you love your job? Well, if you love your job, you probably do what? You set an alarm. You wake up on time, hopefully. You, you, you go to work. You, you fulfill certain practical obligations and duties because you love your job, right? Or in the context of marriage, Say, do you love taking out the trash? Do you love doing dishes? Do you love changing poopy diapers? Usually you're fighting for who's not, oh, you know, oh, oh you're closer, right? Or wh whatever it is, you come up with all these excuses. But nonetheless, we do all those things as duties because of love. You see, obligation in love is, 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 is a, as a fact of life. That if we love things, then we have obligations and duties that we need to do as a way to express our love for whatever that object is in our lives. That obligation in love does not negate love. It's almost as if Paulus is saying, look, love is your only debt because love is the only thing that never ends. It never ends. Do you ever stop loving? Do you ever just, do you ever, are you supposed to at some point, you know, just stop being loving? No, you're not because love is always a requirement. So love is our only debt is what Paul gets at. Now what's also interesting here is to notice he says no one, right? So he says Owe no one anything except to love, which implies what then? If you're to owe no one anything except to love, which means you are to owe love to everyone, 
everyone. The implication here is very clear that Paul is saying that you are to love, that is your only debt, and that love is owed to every single person in your life. You owe love to everyone. Now, loving everyone, it may sound good, it may sound easy, but it's actually very, very difficult. Oftentimes, the two obstacles that people have with regards to loving others in their life is really is twofold. It's, it's status and proximity. You see, status, you know, do we love the rich or the poor? Do we love those who are just popular? No, we love, we're called to love those who are unpopular, right? Are we called to just love those who agree with our political views and our political leanings? Are we called to just love Republicans or Democrats or, or Libertarians or whoever? No, no, no. We're called to love everyone. Are we called to just love Christians? No. Are we called to love just non-Christians? No, we're called to love everyone. We're called to even love our enemies. So status, in terms of how somebody relates to us, is not to be considered with regards to our debt to them. That we are to love people regardless of their status toward us. The second thing that's an obstacle for a lot of people is proximity. See, for for some people, it's very easy to love those who are close to them relationally, a spouse, or children, right? They, they focus on those relationships that are so close to them, but they forget about their neighbors. Some people, we, you know, we don't even know our neighbors, right? This is, this, is, this is a struggle for me. It's like to take time and, and effort to get to know our neighbors and to, to pursue relationships with other people and to show love to them is, it just sounds way too exhausting. But, but you know, like, like making coffee for my wife and loving my kids and, you know, doing that stuff. It's just so much better, so much easier. I don't have to worry about all these other people, right? That, that's wrong. You need to show love towards other people as well. But for other people, it's the reverse. It's so much easier to love strangers. It's so easy to love those who do not know you, do not have to bear with you, do not have to put up with all your stuff, Right? So much easier to go out there in the world and, and, and be civil and be kind and patient with everybody out there standing in line. Somebody cuts you in line. You're like, I'm a Christian. I'll show patience to this person. Go ahead. Deference. Maybe they'll even believe in Jesus as I'm doing this thing, right? Then I come home. Why is it my mom? And then you just go off, right? Or whatever it is. It's so much easier to, to love those out there, those who are further away from proximity, in proximity to you, rather than those who are close to you. So, so people, people struggle with this thing in all kinds of different ways. We treat people with regards to status differently, relate to them differently. We treat people with regards to proximity differently. We're not called to do that. Paul says that this debt that we have, we owe to everyone. Everyone, friend or foe, close to us or not close to us, Christian or non-Christian, right? everyone. And so, why should we love, though? Why should we love people? Why should we love everyone? This leads us to our second thing that we learn about love, and that is that love is a means to a greater end. Notice what he says in verse 8 and verse 9. He says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice he says, fulfilled the law. Now let me ask you this, what was the purpose of the law of God? What's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? You know, some might say those who, who, who want to be good people is that, well, we just got to live by these commandments. We got we to gotta do them. We got to pursue them and, and, and make sure we, we, we go through each one and, and, and nail them, make sure we're doing right by them. But what we see actually is throughout the totality of Scripture, the purpose of God's law was to actually show us our inadequacy, to show us our sin, to show us our shortcoming and our failure. And really, the, the, the purpose of it was for us to be able to see the debt 
that we owe. That was the point of the law. The point of the law, God's law, was to show that we have a debt to pay. That we have a debt to pay to the law. That every time we transgress the law, that is a debt. And, 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 and we can't just ignore that debt. It's interesting that Paul uses this whole analogy of owing because, because think about debt, right? If you have debt, if, for example, you have credit debt, if you just ignore it, is it going to go away? If you're just like, hey, um, you know, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in six months. What's going to happen in six months? You revisit that statement, and it is way larger than you left it, right? Now, the other thing is you also can't pay off debt superficially. You can't just, like, throw Monopoly money at, at debt, right? You can't do that. No, you got to actually pay debt off to get rid of it. You have to pay it off. And so when we look at the law, we see our debt. We see the perpetual need of us needing to pay God back. We owe God. We owe God. We owe God every single day that we sin, which, by the way, is every day. You sin every day. Thought, word, and motive, and deed, whatever. It's all a debt before God. And Paul's point here is that love is a fulfillment of the law. Why? Because, because it's, it's almost as if he's saying, look, the only way that you get out of debt from the law is to get into debt with love. That's the way it happens. The only way that you can actually be freed from the, the burden and debt that you owe to the law is to go into a debt that's to liberate you, and that is the debt of love. So, Because when your debt is love, then you can pay that debt anywhere and everywhere that you are. You see, when you look at the law, you know you can't pay that off. But when God creates in you a heart of love, you begin to see every and any opportunity as a way to display that love to others. So friends, when we think about the purpose of the law, we know that it exists to, to show us our inadequacy, to show us our debt, to show us our sin, to show us the gap between us and God. But the other thing that it's designed to show us is the heart of God, that the law was given to the people of Israel to demonstrate the character and nature of God. See, he even says the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. You shall not bear false witness, you shall not slander, you shall not, whatever it is, whatever imperative, whatever commandment, is all as a, as a way to express the heart of God towards God's people. That when God shows us how we relate to one another, it's a way to see into the heart of God. See, the law, friends, was not meant to be this checklist that we look at and we go, okay, didn't do that, didn't do this, didn't do this, didn't do that. Uh, I'm good. I'm really loving well. And, and in fact, Jesus warns us about this thing because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they would have seen the law in this way. They would have looked at the checklist and they would have gone, I just need to not do this and then I could avoid people. If I just don't do this to people, I could just avoid them. I don't have to really worry about really being involved in relationships and loving other people. I could just not do these bad things and, 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 and do these, these things that God requires of me and I'll be good. And knowing this temptation, Jesus takes all this, these laws, the Ten Commandments, and he sums them up, just as Paul sums them up here. Jesus sums them up by basically saying, you are to love God and love your neighbor. Those are the two great commandments. He's saying everything that you see in the law, all of these rules, all of these regulations, all of these commandments, should be summed up in this way, that you are to love God and that you are to love your neighbor. And what's important about that fact is those two are inseparable, friends. 
We cannot separate love of neighbor from love of God. We cannot separate love of God from love of neighbor. That the way in which we treat other people is, in fact, a demonstration of whether or not we know the love of God. That's what the scripture teaches us. That when you examine the landscape of your life and all of the relationships that you have, that the way in which you love other people is, in fact, evidence of whether or not you know the love of God. You see, John even tells us this in 1 John 4, verses 20 to 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's the point. Love is a means to a greater end Because love demonstrates the heart of God. Love demonstrates the heart of God. But what does that mean exactly? How does love and how we relate to other human beings, how does that demonstrate the heart of God? Well, this leads us to the third thing that Paul tells us about love, and that is this, that love is more about results than intentions. Notice what he says in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, notice the phrase, does no wrong. You see, intentions are fantastic. Intentions are good. We are called to look at intentions. We're called to evaluate intentions. We're called to evaluate our motives. But they don't automatically equate to love. We can have the best intentions in the world towards someone and still hurt them. Those of you who who, who are married can attest to this, that you have the best intentions that once you try to do something for your spouse that you want or or, or not do something that you, you, you wanted to like avoid something that would hurt them, but what you found out was actually what you were intending to do that was loving was actually unloving to them, and they explain it to you and tell you, right? Like, hey, you still hurt me, but, you're, but then you go, then you go, but, but I didn't mean to. I, I didn't intend to. Did that ever fix the situation? Did that ever solve the problem? Probably not. My guess is that, look, that's great you didn't intend to, but you still hurt me. You still did something that brought about pain in my life. And so intentions don't go far enough. That love requires results, which is why Paul says love does no wrong, not feels no wrong, not intends no wrong, not avoids no wrongdoing, but does not do wrong. So what we are to evaluate with regards to love and how we are to treat other human beings is we are to refrain from doing evil towards them and instead do good towards them. That love is more about results, about displaying our love towards the people in our lives. So love results in something. Love results in refraining from wrongdoing. So let's summarize where we are at, we're at so far. So, so Paul tells us three things. He says, love is a debt that we owe, right? Owe no one anything except to love them. That we have a debt that we owe to all of human beings, and that is to love them. The second thing we learn is that love is a means to a greater end. That when we love others, when we do good towards others, and when we refrain from doing evil towards others, that is actually intended to show the heart of God. That love is a means to a greater end, namely displaying and showing the nature and character of God. The third thing that we learn about love is that love is more about results than intentions. So what if you said you don't mean to hurt somebody? Do you hurt them? I know you didn't mean to gossip about them or lie about them, but did you do it? So it's more about results than it is just about our intentions. Now, notice, Paul actually doesn't tell us in these three verses what love actually looks like. 
Did you notice that? He doesn't say like, here's what it looks like to love. Here's what the results of love should be. He doesn't do that. But thankfully, he does tell us what the results of love are elsewhere. He does so in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. You guys know this one. I know if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know this one, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. God have mercy on us, right? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, when when we look at these verses, we actually see 15 things that are characteristics of love, the results of love. And I'm not going to belabor them, but here they are. Patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love doesn't envy other people, want other people's stuff. Love does not boast. It's not puffed up and arrogant and, 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 and wanting to, to be made known. Like, look, look how I'm loving. I'm loving you, right? It doesn't do that. It's not rude. It doesn't come at people and they just tell it like it is. Let me just say it to you so you know it, right? Or, or, or even if maybe you just, maybe there's a way in which you're trying to love and, and it's coming across as rude, then explain that. Here's where I'm coming from. Love does not insist on its own way. I know this is loving. Trust me. Do this. This is loving. No, it, it, it defers. Love is not irritable. Right? You ever been irritable? Come on now. I'm not the only one here. Right? My kid wakes up at 2 a.m., why are you in our bed? Why? Right? Love is not irritable. Go to sleep. Right? Love is not resentful. Somebody does something wrong towards you, you get hurt. They ask for forgiveness, sincere forgiveness. You say you forgive them, but then what? You don't let go of it. Your heart's still in the wrong place, still wants something to be done that might look like vengeance, but you wouldn't say it, right? But love is not that way. It's not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Somebody's doing something wrong, something sinful. They're believing a lie. You don't just go, "Ah, well, sucks for them. No, love is concerned, Love is not rejoicing at wrongdoing and not, not writing people off and saying, well, good for them. We'll see how that ends out for them. No. Love pursues them and, and does not rejoice. Look, this is breaking my heart. This is not okay. Why are you believing this? Why are you acting this way? Why are you doing these things? Why are you saying these things? Not rejoicing at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. That whenever there is truth, when somebody confesses sin or, or shares their heart and is vulnerable towards you, you're not shocked and, oh my gosh, oh, how could you do this? No, you're like, that's wonderful. You're walking in the light. You're, you're, you're sharing, you're confessing your sin. You're, you're, you're pursuing truth. You're rejoicing. Love rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. All things? Really? Paul, all things? All things. Love bears all things. All things? Surely there must be an asterisk in there somewhere. Maybe there's a footnote that has this long list of things that are exclusions. No. It bears all things. Love believes all things. That's not talking about believing every possible worldview in the world. Okay, that, that, that's not, that doesn't make sense, first of all. You can't hold every possible worldview in your mind and every belief at the same time. That's not what he's talking about. When he says love believes all things, he's saying you give people the benefit of the doubt. You give people the benefit of the doubt. You, you, you look at them and whatever their actions are or their words, and your heart towards them isn't like, oh, they're just evil and wicked and they just want to hurt me. Mm. No. You go, look, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not understanding something. You know what? Maybe they are believing this wrong thing that's going to hurt them, but instead of like canceling them out, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to work through it, and I'm going to hope for the best. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, then he says, it hopes all things. 
The love is hopeful. Are you hopeful for people in your life? Or do you write them off? Have you lost hope in people in your life? That may be a sign of hard-heartedness. Your, your love is growing cold. Are you hopeful? Right? Love endures all things. So maybe you're not bearing something yourself, but you're seeing the results of other people's actions and pain and suffering, and you go into that with them to help them, but you're enduring those things with them. You're, you're somebody who, who, who pursues people in their pain, does not abandon them, but you endure. You endure with them. If anybody needs to endure, it's people who have lived in 2020, right? I mean, we, we have to learn how to endure with one another. And the last thing, love never ends. In all circumstances, in all contexts, in all relationships, in all dynamics, love never ends. The question is, do you love sometimes and not other times? How consistent are you in love towards other people in your life? Love never ends. We are called to love at all times, at all times times and circumstances and moments. So how about you? Where are you at? Do you love well? Or do you need to grow? Are you patient? Are you kind towards other people? Are you envious? Do you boast? Are you rude? Do you defer to other people? Do you, do, or do you insist on your own way? Are, are you irritable? Do you get resentful when somebody wrongs you or hurts you? Do you rejoice at wrongdoing? Or do you rejoice with the truth? Do you bear all things? Do you believe all things? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? Are you hopeful? Are you hopeful towards others? Do you endure wrongdoing or are you vengeful? Is your love consistent or does it quickly end? Friends, how we love matters. How we love matters to God and it matters to your neighbor. You see, the world could care less about this. The love of the world is indifference. That's what the love of the world is. And the world is filled with indifference. In all aspects of life, the world is indifferent. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about you know, being loving or kind or patient or, or bearing or, or, or enduring. it. No. But love is to be found among God's people. And so for us, friends, this matters tremendously in how we demonstrate the love of God. This matters to us. At least it should. So here's the discipleship group question this week. In what ways can you love better? In what ways can you love better? Think about this. Reflect on this. Ask the Lord, God, where am I with this? Okay, I've read 1 Corinthians 13 many times. I'm sick of this thing. I've been to every wedding. They're always reading it. All this love stuff, that's fantastic. All this, you know, great. It, it just lives in the theoretical. But no, no, but seriously, it's the word of God. God calls us to love. How are you loving today? What ways can you grow in love? You need to be more patient need to be more kind, you need to give people the benefit of the doubt. What are the ways? Think about them. Ask God to reveal them to you. And here's the faith step. I want us to apply verse 10 this week, okay? I want you to apply verse 10. Here's what verse 10 says. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Is there anyone in your life 
that you have wronged. Take some time. Just, just think about it. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at the time. I think I got some time, so just think about it. Have you wronged anyone in your life? Maybe you've been really harsh with your kids lately. They've been annoying to you, a nuisance. You find yourself, instead of rejoicing in them, being inconvenienced by them. Do you need to apologize to them? Do you need to sit them down, look them in the eye, and say, I'm sorry for how I've been. Will you forgive me? I know I'm, you're a blessing to me. I love you. You've been harsh towards your spouse. You have bitterness towards your spouse. Now, bitterness isn't just something that just like shows up, right? It's not like, I'm bitter, and then you just like you do something very no. Bitterness is like an inner condition of the heart. It's not disclosed, it's not open, it's not visible. Your spouse probably doesn't even know you're bitter at them, but it's there. Are you bitter? You've been bumping against each other in conflict and, and, and having issues and, and, and that sort of thing. Are you bitter? Do you need to confess that to your spouse this week? Do you need to sit down and say, look, I love you. Here's what's been going on. I've been really upset about this, this, and that. And then you confess that, and you trust that they're going to receive it. And then you ask for forgiveness. Say, please forgive me for harboring bitterness in my heart toward you. God calls me to love better. God calls me to love you the way in which he loves me, I want to do that. Please forgive me. Have you judged someone for their politics? Have you? Have you judged someone because they're a Democrat or a right-wing Nazi? Hey, have you judged them for their politics? Have you written them off? Oh, they're just going to hell, man, uh, in a handbasket, quickly, quickly. Have you judged them, or do you love them? Do you, need a, do, you need a, do you need to work it out with them? Do you need to say, I mean, how odd would this be to the world? How odd, how utterly insane. You go up to somebody who absolutely thinks vastly different than you, and you say, you know what? You don't know this. I would have never told you this, but my pastor told me to apply verse 10, Romans 13, and here I am doing it. I've judged you. I've judged you for your politics, you Biden voter, you Trump voter. I've judged you. I've hated you. I, I, I've, 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 I've canceled you. I've ostracized you. I've written you off. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're an image bearer of God. You value dignity and worth. And my heart was really hard towards you. It's growing cold towards you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. What would that do to that relationship? What would it do? resurrection life maybe lord willing maybe there'd be hope there maybe there'd be reconciliation maybe there'd be maybe some some love growing in the world as a result of those types of interactions the world doesn't want you to have that because the world can't produce it it doesn't come from the world it comes from god so have you wronged anyone in your life and how do you need to right that wrong? You see, friends, the good news of the gospel is the love of God. Amen? God loves you. God loves us. John 3.16, another one. We know this. We know this. We know this. It's written in our subconscious, except we've we got to get it through our hearts, not our heads. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his son, he gave his son for you, that you might believe that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's a lot of condemnation going around. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came so that the world might be saved through him. See, because of love, Jesus left all his rule, all his dominion, all his glory, all his riches in heaven and came into human flesh, into human history as a baby born in human flesh because of love. He lived a perfect, sinless life in obedience to God, fulfilling the law because you and I can't do it because of love. 
Jesus went to the cross. He looked at the cross, it says, in the word of God, and the scriptures teach us that he counted it joy before him to go to the cross and die for our sin in our place, bearing our curse, bearing our debt that we owe to God because of love. And he didn't stay dead. Praise God, he did not stay dead. He rose. We believe, just so you know, maybe you've never heard this before, we believe Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave three days later, conquering our sin, our debt, our failure, our wrongdoing, our hopelessness, our suffering, all of the things that are wrong and broken in our lives and in this world. He rose from the grave because of what? Love. Love. And not, yeah, amen. Thank you, Alex. That's good. And not only that, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I because of love. And he's seating at the right hand of the Father right now, reigning and ruling over all things, over all earthly kingdoms, over all kings of this world. He knows what he's doing, and he's still Lord of Lords and King of Kings because of love. And one day, one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back because he's a God who makes good on his promises because of love. He will right all wrongs. He will redeem all things. He will reconcile us and the rest of his people throughout all of human history in all of times and places around the globe because of love. And he will put an ultimate end to sin and death forever, forever, because of love. God loves us, friends. You see, you want to grow in love? You want to be a more loving person? You want to demonstrate God's love? Then receive God's love. See, we can't grow in love, friends, unless we receive the love of God. You need to receive the love of God. Is your heart growing cold towards the world, towards people? Are you, are you hopeless about your circumstances? Are you hopeless about the politics in this world? Are you hopeless about your relationships? Are you hopeless about corona and everything that's going on with COVID, all this stuff? Are you hopeless? You need to be reminded of the love of God, friends. You need to receive God's love. Do not let your heart grow cold because the world will. You see, only when we receive the love of God can we grow in love towards other people. The only way you can forgive a brother who's, or sister who's like very opposite of you on the political spectrum or has done something that's hurt you or whatever is because of love. The only way that you can, you can go into another conflict with your spouse, not intending to destroy them, is because of love. The only way you can humble yourself before your kids and look them in the eye and tell them, sorry, I'm so sorry, forgive me, because of love. The only way you can, you can confess your sin to someone and say, I've been judging you. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why? Because you love them. That's why. So friends, we need the love of God. That is Paul's point. Here's the heart of the matter. When you experience the love of God, you can show love towards others. Amen? That's what the world needs, friends. It needs us to show the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love toward us. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you counted it joy to go to the cross, to die for our sin, to rise from the grave, to redeem us, to reconcile us. And Lord, and, and, and you've loved us. You loved us. You didn't have a debt to pay to us, and you paid the greatest debt, the debt of sin and death. Jesus, you lived your life on this earth you did it for a greater end, to reconcile us, to redeem us, and to forgive us because of your love. And God, we pray that would you please 
Make us people who love well. By your grace, as we ponder the lavish love of God, may we be impacted to love others, not like the world does, but the way in which you do. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who loves us so well. Amen.